Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. Good morning. Grab a seat. How we doing? Okay, a couple people are doing all right. Hey, it's one of those weeks. I get it. Chiefs lost, not going to the Super Bowl. It's snowy and icy. Don't woo that. I'll kick you out. <laughs> no sinners allowed. No, I'm teasing. We're all allowed. Do you ever worry that they're going to take, like, one little thing I say as a joke and, like, out of context, you know, be like, oh, here's a video of that pastor saying sinners aren't allowed and da, da, da. And they did it to Jesus. They'll do it to me, whatever. Hey, we are in a new series that we started last week talking about <clears throat> that very thing, denial. And, and a lot of times we think of this as just atheists that deny Jesus and want nothing to do with God or the Bible or church and any of that. And, oh, they're living in denial, which is true. They are. They're living in denial. But we're talking to the church. We're talking to us who put our hope, our faith, and our trust in Christ, but still at times struggle with denial. You know, there's so many times that I feel like God's not even there. Feel like I'm praying to the ceiling because that's where they stop. Am I, am I prayers really going to the ears of God? Is he really hearing me? Does he see my life? Does he see the things that are going on? And there's a lot of times that I let my worldview shift from the reality and the truth of who God is and what he has done for me and what he is continually doing in and through my life. This is why corporate worship is so important. This helps me realign and put myself under God, that you guys strengthen me and I hope that we strengthen each other, that we don't live in this denial, but we encourage one another. I think uh, Hebrew says, as the day is drawing near, that we encourage one another. Don't live in that denial, but live in the truth of who God is. And so we are in Matthew 21. This is starting the last week of Jesus's life, um, and we're going to take more than a week to get through it. <clears throat> You're welcome. And so we're picking up in verse 12, chapter 21, if you have your Bibles, read along with me. And just if you, if you don't have one and you want one, uh, we bought the exact ones that I use. You know, sometimes you go to churches and they have those like real paper thin, made out of like recycled like newspaper that, you know, you wouldn't trust in any, yeah. We bought actually like fairly nice ones, the exact one I carry. And so if you want one, go grab one. It's not stealing, it's a gift to you. And if you want to steal it, steal it. I don't care. It's not stealing. It's a gift. But if you don't have a physical Bible, take one, read it. It is yours. They're back there. Grab it. Verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the wonderful things that Jesus did, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear? Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you not read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. And in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruits ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up, thrown into the sea, it will happen. 
And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if, don't you love those little verses, little words in the, if you have faith. And so we know this is uh, starting the early of the week. We know how the end of the week kind of wraps up. We know that story. That's how we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, the empty tomb, the cross. And so this is how we're getting to that. And you see Jesus walking into the temple. Uh, Mark says that when he came in on the triumphal entry, he walked into the temple and he just looked around, just kind of surveyed it, and then he left. And he came back the next day, and that's when all these events take place. Uh, I kind of like that. Jesus walks in and he sees it and he says, you know what, this is not, this is not what my father had in plan when we built this. This was not the plan that was handed down from God to even Moses in the tabernacle all the way to the temple. This is not the plan that we had, looking at the activities of what was happening in the temple. And what we have to understand about the temple, there was kind of like three, three areas that you could go, right? Even like your house. Like you might invite me over, maybe, and you, you'll invite me into the living room. Maybe even the kitchen. But you're not going to invite me into the bedroom. That's the Holy of Holies. You know, and so the temple was the same way. Like there was the temple court on the outside and a lot of people were welcome in that. Gentiles were welcome in that. And that's where a lot of this selling and things were going on. Uh, And then you had the holy place. Only certain people were allowed into that. And then you had the Holy of Holies, and that's where that veil separated. And only one person one time a year was allowed in on that Day of Atonement where they would go in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And so we see this scene that is setting. We're in the temple courts. And what's happening is Jesus is walking in. It's like the activities that are happening in my house are not fitting to the purpose that we built my house. I say that all the time to my kids. I come home, see what they are doing in my house. And that is not the intended purpose of my house. You quit jumping on my couch, quit climbing on the walls. That is not the purpose of my house. And so I overturn tables and I drive them out. (laughs) I get them sinners out of there. This is a house of prayer and prayer is quiet. Not always, but for my kids, yes it is. (laughs) But you hear Jesus saying, my house is a house of prayer. There's a whole sermon on that, just him saying, my house, not the Father's house. My house is a house of prayer. And again, going back to Mark 11, because again, you got to read the Gospels together to get the full story. These are just three or four perspectives of what's going on. And Mark says that Jesus, he records him saying, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations. So even the intended purpose is that his house would be a house of prayer, but the purpose was not just for Israel. That God built his house so that the nations could come and pray to him. Kind of pushes the purpose of what the Jews and Israel was supposed to be. They were always supposed to be missional. They They were a missionary nation in their intended design. The problem is that they didn't fulfill it. They were supposed to be this royal priesthood. Go clear back to Exodus 19, and and God describes who they are supposed to be. As my chosen people, as my Israel, this is who you're supposed to be. And they were always supposed to be missional. They were always supposed to have an open door for the nations. That's when you go back to Exodus 19, it says a holy nation. That word nation in the the Hebrew is goy, G-O-Y. And it means like a, a Gentiled nation. Well, they thought, hey, we're picked. We're the chosen ones. We're the cream of the crop. Everybody needs to become like us. And it's like, no, 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 no. Everybody needs to come and serve the God that you serve. You were supposed to be those kind of priests. And so uh, he's quoting, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 56. So if you have your Bible, it's always good to go back and let's see the exact quote that he's saying. So Isaiah 56, and this is verses six and seven. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to Yahweh, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone, not just Israel, 
everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Usually we think of the temple and we think of the sacrificial system. And yes, there was a purpose for that. But we lose sight that it was a house of prayer. And so God's design was for his house to be a space for all nations to gather together and to pray and to seek him. Where they could pour out their hearts in the presence of a living God. I think that's what the church should be. A space for us to lift our hearts to the Lord. Maybe through music, through the giving of the word, through fellowship. That this is to be a house of prayer. And so we think about prayer, and, and normally we think about sitting down before the meal and we have this little prayer, and my grandparents taught me, you know, they taught us at a young age, hey, we, gotta, we pray before we eat, and they even had a little prayer for us for all we eat, for all we wear, for all we have everywhere, because they were poets. We thank you, Father, amen. And we would get really ornery, and we would say things like, for all we eat, for all we wear, even our underwear. Grandma would scold us and grandpa would laugh. And then the few times grandpa did our version of the prayer, there was, there was no hope then. Like I choking on food and laughing really hard. We think of prayer that way. Maybe you pray before you go to bed or you, or you pray when there's a massive situation in your life or someone close to you. It's kind of our, our 411 and our 911 to God when we need info and, and when there's an emergency. But prayer is so much more than that. I love this working definition. Prayer is living life in a God-conscious way. I think that's what Paul meant when he says pray without ceasing. He says devote yourselves to prayer where we're gonna embrace fully God's kingdom, God's people, God's mission. That we have this this. Not this prayer is something that we do, but it's something that should mark our lives as Christians. It's not just an activity here and there and when something bad happens, but it should mark our lives that we live in a prayerful way, living life focused always on God. And I struggled with this. I struggled in a prayer life, and I'll be honest, still kind of do. Uh, you know, some people are like, we should have a prayer meeting where we just come together and we pray for like an hour or two. My ADD won't last 10 minutes. Like we'll be praying. I'll start counting the number of little flowers on the carpet and then I'll be thinking about all this and that and why didn't I win that track meet when I was 15? Like my mind wanders real quick. And there's been times in my life where I felt less spiritual, less mature because of that. And I thought, oh, you wretched sinner, Nick, get over this. You need to pray like this person, that person. They pray for hours. Oh, they must be so close to God. And then the Lord convicted me. And he said, why are you trying to be them? How about you just be you? And so uh, it was an elder of a church that I was just attending. And he said, think of something that you do frequently in your day. And at the time, I was, I was a pediatric nurse. And so I'd walk in to exam rooms about 100 times a day because them snotty kids needed the loving care of medical attention. See, I did better there. I refrained from where I wanted to go. He said, every time you walk into an exam room, just lift up a small two or three, four word prayer. Lord, be with me. Lord, I lift up my kids to you. Lord, hey, here's the situation. I don't know what to do. And I'm walking in eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours a day, walking in these rooms constantly talking to the Lord. And it was hard work at the first couple weeks. Any spiritual discipline, any discipline, right? How you doing on your New Year's resolution? How's that gym membership going? Mine's not going too well. It was hard the first couple weeks. And what I found myself is just talking to the Lord, almost to the point where I wasn't even paying attention to my job. Like, oh, your kid's sick, sorry. Okay, hold on, what's going on here? I was praying. 
but we need to live life in a way that we're focusing on God. So yeah, you, you might be at work, but what are you talking to God about? I think that's why Jesus was a carpenter. I think that's why Jesus was a carpenter. I love working on projects when I don't lose my patience because I don't have the right tool or something goes wrong, but working on projects and, and even though I'm painting or I'm doing something in the house because my wife has this lovely list of projects to do, and my mind just wanders and I think about the Lord, I think about the church, I think about you guys. I'm praying about you guys. I'm praying about the direction of the church. All the while, I'm just painting. And I love that. I love that line that talks about, you know, if you're sitting in church thinking about fishing or surfing, that's religion. But if you're out fishing, surfing, thinking about God, that's faith. That's a prayer life. And I love that mentality that no matter what we are doing, God's there. And I struggle with that. Even in my own faith, I think like, Lord, I could have a really strong faith if you would do this. But the problem is, I don't get to call the shots in it. He has set up prayer. This wasn't our idea. It wasn't like Adam and Eve said, "Uh, okay, you kicked us out of the garden, but we still would like some communication with you. God's not like, all right, you know, here's the cell phone, call me whenever. That's not how it was. God designed prayer. God set that up. And we have to trust that if God instituted and set up this mode of communication and this mode of living our life that marks us and and our focus of God, that this is the best thing for us. That yeah, miracles are gonna be rare and visions and dreams that God revealing himself are gonna be rare and, and few and far between. That's why they're called miracles. Can't happen every day or they're this normal everyday stuff. But what we have constantly no matter what we're doing, is the opportunity to speak to the Lord. He says, this is what my house should be about. This is what should mark my people. And so he walks in and he's seeing this den of robbers. And you hear that line and you think, okay, how is the temple court becoming a den of robbers? And and I love the analogy. You ever been to a Chiefs game? You ever been to a Royals game or a Cardinals game? You ever been to Six Flags? Or if you're in Kansas City, it's uh, Worlds of Fun. Go buy a hot dog. You can go to Walmart, and for like $2, you can get like 10 hot dogs. You go to a Chiefs game, and you buy a hot dog. It's $45. (laughs) Same hot dog. Same hot dog. They upcharge you. Why? Because you can't bring in your own food. You can only buy this food. And they upcharge you. Because what are you going to do? Where else are you going to go? If you want to eat, this is all you get. And they would rob people that way, just like they do now, the den of robbers. And they would upcharge you in other ways because the Jews were coming from all over parts of the world. And they didn't have a universal money whatsoever. So you you had your money, your dinero, your limpira. That's what it is in Honduras. And you came into the temple court, and it's like, hey, I, I, need to buy a, I need to buy a goat. I need to buy a lamb. Oh, I'm so glad, but we don't accept that. We only accept MasterCard and Visa. We don't accept that money. You need to exchange it. And you know the exchange rates were not in favor of the buyer. The exchange rates were always in favor to the temple. There was not a one-to-one ratio whatsoever. So they would rob people on that end to exchange their money, then they would upcharge the actual animal that you had to buy. And you might be thinking, well, you could just like the movie theater, none of you sinners do this. We could just take our own snacks in. We can bring our own lamb to the altar. But they had to be approved, right? And so you'd go and you show your lamb, hey, I brought it from home, one-year-old, without blemish, here we go. Oh, they would find a blemish. So they don't want to lose money on that. Be like, oh, I'm sorry, this lamb's not lamby enough. We're going to have to, you you can't use that when you're going to have to buy one here. But we have a sale. They're on sale. Oh yeah, I'm sure they are. And so you exchange your money, you buy that lamb, and then you got all this leftover money that you can't take home because they don't use that in your hometown. So what do you do? You go back to the exchange rate and turn it back into the money you want. And guess where they rob you again? 
They're making money hand over fist. Not 20, some of the speculations were 100 times they're making money over this. A flat out robbery. And so when Jesus says, hey, you're a den of robbers, he's absolutely perfectly describing what is going on in the temple courts. And he's quoting scripture again. He's saying in Isaiah, this is what we should be, a house of prayer. But then he quotes from Jeremiah 7. And you really don't want your life or your ministry prophesied from Jeremiah 7. Those weren't really good words that the Lord had through the prophets to Israel in Jeremiah 7. That the same idolatrous worship that was going on in Jeremiah 7, he's looking at the temple courts in this exchange of robbery and money, and he's saying, you're just like them. That's massive idolatrous worship and social injustice. You are that same den of robbers that Israel was clear back in Jeremiah's day. So in the chaos of this temple commerce. I mean, imagine walking into Wall Street where they're, you know, buying, selling, trading, they're hollering, they're doing the signs, you can buy coffee and they're doing all that, you know, and then you're trying to pray. That's like at my house trying to watch TV. And we got a gymnastics tournament going on in the front room. I got a drummer downstairs. My wife is so lovingly trying to articulate something to me. And I just wanna watch TV. You can't, you can't pray why all this commotion and this is going on. There's a, there's a bigger focus on the exchange of money than on seeking the Lord. And so in the chaos of this temple commerce, prayer was impossible. And what's so hard about this is those, how did I word this? Those of God's house were keeping others from God's presence. Imagine having that said about you, that we as Christians, the very ones that we are called by his name, are keeping others from him. And churches do it all the time. Christians do it all the time. That the very ones that we're called to go out and reach and go and be on mission and, and draw people to the Lord to go and spread the gospel, to share the hope and the love of Christ, we at times, and we're real good at it, are the very ones that are keeping people at a distance from Jesus. He didn't have kind words for Israel then, and I don't think he'll have kind words when we do that. That the very purpose that you were intended to be, you're absolutely in the exact opposite of it. You were supposed to go and reach and draw people in and you're keeping them at arm's bay. Happened to me and my wife. Before we were married, we weren't invited to church because we were not married and we had a kid together and we lived together. We were not invited to church, not until we got married. Then all of a sudden the invites came in because I made her an honest woman that hurt. We still live with that. You love me enough to invite me, but not in my complete brokenness. I have no interest of leading that kind of church. I'm just going to throw that out there. I want people to find a house of prayer, a house of praise, a house of his word, a house of fellowship, because if their sin is enough to keep them out of this place, so is yours. And never lose sight of that. Because if you knew the worst about me, you wouldn't want me to be your pastor. And if I knew the worst about you, I wouldn't let you in. But thank the Lord that we have a place that we can congregate together. Not because we're great and we're awesome, because he is. And he went to a cross for us. And he knows the worst that we've done. He knows the worst that we will do. And he still calls us by name. And he still calls us and invites us to walk with him. And if that's Jesus' response to the broken in the world, I think ours should be the exact same.
that we invite and ask others to walk with us. What if they say no? That's on them. But what's on us is are we inviting? Are we going? Are we reaching? Are we bringing people in? Or are we the very ones that are keeping people at bay from Jesus? He doesn't need bodyguards. We don't need to stand at the door and be like, ooh, God, you really don't want this person a part of your, your fellowship here. That would be really bad. Like, don't you know what they do? Like, I'll take care of it, Lord. I got you on this one. You can thank me later. And why, hey, we got to talk. We, you're really not welcome here because of, nah. That's nowhere in the description of what we are called to be as Christ followers and definitely not as the church. And what's always hard is you see Jesus driving these people out who have this misinterpreted purpose of what the house of God is supposed to be. But then you see people coming to him. Verse 14, that the blind and the lame are coming to him in the temple and he's healing them. And the chief priests, the scribes, they're seeing the wonderful things. And I love that they put that word in there. They're seeing wonderful things Jesus is doing. They're hearing children praise Jesus for it. And if you know anything about kids, they don't lie at all. That's why I ask my kids, does this look okay? Do I look all right? My wife will be like, oh, you just look so great. She has to say that, right? My kids, eh, they'll give you the honest truth. They'll absolutely give you the honest truth. And so we see these wonderful things that Jesus is doing. Kids are praising and worshiping him. And they become indignant. And so it's always key to understand, who did Jesus drive away? And who did he welcome in? That's a hard study to look at. And are we reflecting that same thing? Who, who are we welcoming in? Who are we driving away? And we should take a regular, hard look, honest look at ourselves and ask, are we doing the same thing? One of the ways for me, this is way of uh, description, not prescription, right? One of the ways I do this is uh, think of the question, uh, what does it take to become a follower of Jesus? Simple faith. Put your faith and your trust in Christ. Simple faith. Now, as you live that out, it's going to get a little more complicated, a little harder, but to become a follower of Jesus, it's simple faith. And then I ask myself this question, what does it take to serve in his church? It's easy to become a follower of Jesus. Some churches, you have to give blood. You have to take a 100-week program. You have to show, like, tax ID and bank accounts. There, there's been some hoops that we've jumped through. And I just want to serve coffee, man. I just want to rearrange the chairs. Now, obviously, we're going to have some certain level, especially with our kids and students. We're not going to just let anybody. We're going to do a little background checks, stuff like that. And, and, you know, we're not, oh, you want to be a Sunday school teacher? Sure. And, you know, we're going to check out theologically and doctrinally or something like that. Life group leaders. We're, do the, but to serve in the church, what does it take? What does it take to serve Christ with your life within the place that should be the starting. That should be the starting place for that, the starting line of that. That for somebody new in their faith, like, where are they going to serve? This should be an opportunity for those that are young in their faith to, to give a space to serve in that. Is it going to be awkward at times? Oh, absolutely. I love the story. <clears throat> this guy gets out of prison. And he, he starts going to church, and he's been there for a little bit and connects with the youth pastor and says, hey, I, just, you know, I was a teenager when I started going adrift in my life, and I could pinpoint that that's the time in my life where I really needed somebody I would love to serve in the youth ministry. And obviously with his history, youth pastor was a little leery, which is good, a little cautious. He said, hey, if you want to come and help set up chairs on Wednesday, that'd be great. And he did, faithfully served for weeks. He says, hey, if you want to help, you want to, you want to run the snack shop or whatever it was. And he did. And he served faithfully for weeks. And so they were getting ready to leave on a trip. And, and he, the pastor asked this guy, said, hey, will you, will you pray for us before we leave? And he just felt honored. Man, I get to pray for these students. And so they all grab arms and they're taking hands and they're circled up. And he says, Satan, you SOB, you stay away from these kids. <laughs> Love his heart. Love is hard, probably not the direction I would have went with that prayer. But 
if he isn't allowed in, where, where is he going to be allowed in to grow in his faith? Where are we going to allow people? If it's not here, let's, okay, yeah, let's not do it here. Let's not have these young, immature people because we don't know what they're going to say or what they're going to do. It's going to be crazy. Their lives are messy. Can't, can't have them in the church. Help me. Where are they going to go to serve and to grow and to mature in their faith? Who out in the lost, broken world is going to walk with them through that brokenness and that messiness of life? I think the Lord, that there was this little Sunday school class that allowed us newlyweds, and we knew nothing. I said, hey, we, we have a son, and we don't want to put him in the nursery because we don't trust him. They're crazy in there. Who would volunteer in a nursery? Those people are crazy. Don't trust them yet. They said, can we keep our kid with us? Absolutely. And they provided a space for us to ask really hard questions. They provided a space for us to serve. They provided a space for us to grow in our faith with Jesus. And so when we raise the bar beyond what Jesus has set and what he seeks, that's legalism. And that's scary. And we're becoming the ones that Jesus drove away. I saw that. There's a little meme going around on the social media. I don't want to sit at tables that Jesus overturned. Oh, that hurts. I don't want to sit at tables that Jesus overturned. I don't want to be the ones that were keeping people from coming into a house of prayer. I don't want to be the ones that are keeping people from walking and growing, even, even finding faith, let alone maturing in their faith. Now, is it going to be messy? Absolutely. Is it going to be hard? Oh, I hope so. That sounds kind of fun. What are we going to do? I don't know. Well, what happens if these kind of people start walking in? Let's pray about it. It's a house of prayer for a reason. And anytime we lack wisdom, we just seek him. Who's going to give us wisdom in that? And so I don't need to have a pre-thought idea of, okay, what's going to happen, pastor, if, if these type of people start showing up and they want to get involved? I'm going to seek the Lord about it, and I hope you'd seek the Lord with me about it, and we'll figure it out. I think God's in control enough. I believe he's sovereign enough to handle whatever's going to come at us as his body, as his church. I think he's, he's got a good grasp of, of this whole thing called earth. I mean, he spoke it into creation. I think he has us. The question is, are we seeking him? Do we have him leading and guiding us? And so you see these people coming to Jesus. He's healing. You hear these children screaming and cr no, crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And they were indignant. See, our decisions and our actions, talking about, you know, this whole denial and worldview, our decisions, our actions, they reveal our worldview. What we value, what we believe, those reveal our worldview to the world around us. Another way you could put it is, what makes you tick, right? And that's a good thing. What makes you tick? Like, there's, there's good things about my life. Certain things that just make me tick that I love talking about. I love talking about my kids and what they're into. It's almost nauseating. It's like, oh, of course, his kids are perfect. Not at all, but they're wonderful, and I love them. Talking about my wife, that's something that I just... I think she's awesome. She's the standard. We're going to talk about this at the marriage night. She's the standard the rest of you women need to try to meet to. And I'm going to guard that standard. I'm not going to allow any other standard to come in. My family, something miss, makes me tick. I used to like running. That used to make me tick. Now it makes me hurt. <laughs> but there's things like that, and there's good things, things that make us tick. But also, what ticks us off? When I first came here to Calvary, we were in a, a staff meeting, and, and the first one I kind of led, I said, hey, I think the best thing that I could do is try to teach you who I am, the things that make me tick and the things that tick me off, just so we're all aware, so nobody's, you know, surprised. But when we look at our lives and the things that tick us off, those also reveal our hearts. You know, so I, the question before us, what offends you? What annoys you? What disgruntles you? What causes you to become indignant? That's another thing that's going to reveal in your heart. That's another way that your heart can be revealed. What ticks me off? People driving really slow in front of me. Drive real slow off a cliff, but just not in front of me. 
okay? That makes me, doesn't make me tick, it ticks me off. But it reveals my heart that I have no patience. I'm still a dirty, rotten sinner in need of grace. But the hypocrisy of these religious leaders is evidence. You're looking at the temple court. There's greed, there is theft, there is massive injustice, no concern. Everything looks well in the temple court today. We are making money hand over fist. They had no problem with it whatsoever. Jesus comes in, heals, does wonderful things, children calling out. Now it's war. Because they were in denial. And, and you hear the indignation that this is just, it's been brewing, it's been brewing, they've seen it out, and now Jesus is on our front steps. He's here. Yeah, he was doing it out in the wilderness and walking around different towns, but now he's here acting like this. We absolutely have to put a stop to it. And so when God reveals those things to us in our own heart that cause us to get ticked off, he's saying, hey, there's something you need to deal with here. There's something you need to make a change in your life. There's, there's a cancer here that you need to cut out of your life that is only going to grow, it's only going to kill, and it's only going to destroy more of your life. And that's the thing with cancer. It always grows, and it never stops. And sin in our life might be expressed in different ways. Let it be uh, gossip or uh, self-righteousness, impatience, anger. Like, ah, oh, that's just who I am. No, that's not who you are. You're a child of God. That's not how you were wired. You weren't created for that. That's sin. That's, the, that's hell working its way out in your life. You need to cut that literally out of your life. God is revealing to you, hey, that is not who we are as a child of God. And so the same way that he reveals good things to us, his love, his grace, the hope that we have in Christ, his righteousness, when he reveals those things, those sins in our lives, those are opportunities for us to grow in our faith, to say, you know what, I could be this, but I'm going with God's way. I'm going to go with him. I'm going to trust him in this. And I love how Jesus responds to him. He says, do you hear what they're saying? Like, have you even stopped? Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus is like, absolutely, I hear what they're saying. Have you not read the scriptures? They're, they're so upset by what they're hearing from these kids. And Jesus is like, absolutely, I know what they're saying. Have you not read the Bible? Remember, who did he say this to? The religious elite. And the scribes, the ones that probably had this whole thing memorized. Oh, do you not know what they're, do you not remember that? That's Psalm 8. Here, I'll quote it back to you. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. Do you not know what they're saying? They're quoting scripture. Understand that. You are angered that children are quoting scripture. Now, isn't there a whole bunch in Deuteronomy talking about how we should raise our children the way they should go and, and we should teach them his statutes and his commands and write it on our, isn't there all that? And now they're quoting it and you're mad about that? That's a massive hypocrisy. Imagine that as a parent, teaching your kids, John three sixteen, And then they're in their room just singing it out and you run in there, quit all this happiness and fun and quit quoting scripture, da, 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 don't you... Isn't this what we were supposed to do? Isn't this like the purpose that we are to bring praise to God through this? And that's the thing about hypocrisy. That's about the thing about sin. It doesn't have to make sense, and it won't. And it'll frustrate us. Sin isn't reasonable. And it doesn't want to be. It wants us to make, make us look absolutely insane. And that hypocrisy absolutely does. And so that next morning, Jesus wakes up, and he's walking in. He, I, I think he got up early to spend some time with the Lord. He skipped breakfast, even though it is the most important meal of the day, um, probably because they weren't eating bacon yet, so I would have skipped too if there's no bacon. He's walking along, and he sees this fig tree, and I, 
for me, this is like a lived out parable that you have to see these two events happening together, that you cannot separate them. Everything that happened in the temple courts with, with the den of robbers and supposed to be a house of prayer and what I was supposed to see, but I didn't see, but what am I seeing? And now this real life parable explains all of that. So he's walking along, he sees this fig tree, he walks up to it, it had leaves, it looked great, but he finds nothing. And this is like one of only two destructive miracles that Jesus performs, the fig tree and then the herd of pigs. And just take note that those were not directed at people. Out of the two destructive miracles that Jesus performed, they were never directed at people. But all the other miracles he performed always were. When he was bringing health, sight, when he was bringing uh, the lame to walk, he was always directed. When he was only too destructive, were not directed at people. But this real life parable, it's showing God's disapproval of people who are all leaves and no fruits. So if you know anything about a fig tree, because we have those growing all around us, right? If you walk up to a fig tree, the fruit is actually developed first and then the leaves. So if you see a fig tree full of leaves, the normal purpose, the normal uh, design of that is if you see a fig tree nice, full of leaves, you would absolutely find fruit on that because the fruit develops first. And but Jesus walks up, he sees this fig tree seeing all these leaves. And he's like, oh, absolutely. There's going to be some fruit on this. And he starts looking around. He's seeing nothing. Externally, this tree is looking good, but it is not producing the fruits. It is not following its purpose for some reason. See what he's saying? He walked in and he saw Israel in the temple. And I should have saw fruitfulness. I should have saw prayer. I should have saw nations coming together seeking God. But I found no fruits. And even though he withered the fig tree, Israel withering on its own because they were not stepping into the intended purpose that God had for him. And I pray that when Christ returns, that he wouldn't find a church that's all leaves and no fruits because fruitfulness is the goal. I'd rather have a tree with no leaves and it looks a hot mess because the intended purpose is fruitfulness. Even in our lives, individually, us corporately, fruitfulness is the goal. Scripture memorization, Bible reading, absolutely good. Fellowshipping together, absolutely good. Having a good moral standard, absolutely good things. But that's not our intended purpose. We are called to live fruitful lives for Jesus. And we have to look at our own lives. And do people look at me and do they see the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Or am I just all leaves? Am I all show? And there's nothing. Because the fruit of a fig tree, the fruit in our lives, it's not for us. A tree produces fruit for others. The fruit that we produce in our lives is not for us, but for others. We cannot be inwardly focused in the fruit of our lives. And just as this fig tree went against its creative purpose, we are prone to go against our created purpose as the body of Christ. It is not just this holy huddle, a few of us and no more, nothing, no. The goal of our lives is to be fruitful and effective in the hands of a living God that's gonna use us outside of these walls. This is, just, this is just a home base where you can resupply ammo and supplies, where you can get your wounds bandaged up, where you can get encouraged so you can get back out on the mission field. There's a couple in our church and they have a sign right outside of their door on the inside as they're leaving. It says, welcome to the mission field or the mission field starts now. That's the same way, same way here. I want you to be able to come here and take the mask off and take the weight and the burdens off and, and to be real and transparent with one another. 
We don't need to ammo up. We don't need to supply up. We don't need to get our armor on for in here. And sadly, a lot of churches, you do have to do that. You have to be on guard when you walk into the house of prayer. Not here. No, this is where we can come and be real. We can be transparent. We can be open. We can be honest. We can say, you know what? This week sucked and it hurt. And if I could have skipped it, I would have. And I don't want to go back out there. This is what that place should be. And then we pour into each other. Then we love on each other. Then we pray for each other. We put hands on each other. We build each other up so that we can go back out there and serve Christ with our lives. That's what this place should be. This isn't the mission field. This isn't where we are fruitful. Fruitful is out there. This is under the tree. We are to be fruitful out there, not in here. And so God wants us to have a heart for, and if you go back through in a very pastoral way, you know, those old sermons where they, all the little bullet points would start with the same word. It still happens. God wants us to have a heart for prayer. That we should. This house be a house of prayer. Now, is it always going to be with our head bowed, our eyes closed, hands crossed? No. Definitely don't do that if you're driving. But we can pray at all times. But that should mark us. We need to have a heart for prayer that God has designed and set up this communication process with him. He wants us to have a heart for people. That he welcomed in the hurts and those that need healing. Now, I have touched many people that had disabilities. Pediatric nurse, I've seen, I've seen a lot. From downs to heart disease, lung disease. It's one of the worst calls you have to have to make. Tell a mom that their two-year-old has bone cancer. And I held that kid in my arms that morning. But he still had bone cancer. Still had Down syndrome. Still had heart issues. Still had these diseases. And so what kind of healing are we have for people? Something deeper than just physical. But I've seen healing of hearts. I've seen healing in relationships. I've seen healing in marriages. I've seen forgiveness where you think it would never be, exist, that there's a healing deeper than just for the lame to walk or the blind to see. But you've been seen healing in hearts transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And so we have a heart for prayer, heart for people, a heart for praise. And it's not how good we do up here, even though we try to bring excellence to what we do. And we, we can understand in a room of so many people that we probably all have differences. If we all got to pick the radio, we'd probably all pick different songs. We get that. But engagement isn't how well Andy and the team does, but engagement in worship is my heart's. And some of the most engaged people in worship sometimes are just standing here like this, floored by the grace of God and the opportunity that we get to sing praise to God. So we have a heart for people, heart for prayer, heart for praise, and kind of already mentioned it, a heart for power. Now, I've never looked at a mountain and said move, but I've seen mountains move in my life. Things that I held on to that I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to die on this hill and I'm never going to let go of it because I can't forgive that person because you don't know what they did to me and I'll never let go of that. And then for some reason, in his timing, God's loosened my grip on that. And so, yeah, I'm not seeing real mountains move, but I'm seeing a move in my life. I see a move in other people's lives. But again, there's something greater than just withering trees and, and moving mounds of dirt. But we get to change hearts. The things that people used to hold valuable and what were their gods that were destroying their lives, now we get to see them hold fast to the one true God. And we see people grow in their relationship with Christ that we need to have a heart for that kind of transforming power in our life and in the lives around us. And so when we miss the purpose that Jesus has for us, we're living in denial. If we make our lives about anything else, we're living in denial. 
and, and our worldview of what our faith is, if it's not matching the reality of who Jesus is, we're living in denial. That's why we always go back and we look to Jesus. We allow him to lead and guide our lives. We allow his spirit to fill our hearts because I don't want to live in denial anymore. I'm not that old, but I'm too old to be living in denial of what Jesus wants for my life. And if you're crazy enough and you want to be bold enough in your faith, I'm excited for the journey that God has for us, and I would love for you to be a part of that, that I don't want to live in denial anymore. I want to live to the fullness of what Christ has for me. So, Father, we love you. We are absolutely floored by the grace and the mercy and your love that you have for us because we know how unfitting we can become and how we can live in that denial and we can be the very ones that are keeping people from you. Lord, forgive us for that. We know that was never our intended purpose. That was not what you created and called us to be. And so we seek repentance, Lord, for the ways that we have done that. And we ask that you would lead and guide our lives, that we'd be able to show hope and love and grace and mercy and truth to those around us. Let it be in little ways, let it be in big ways. We just surrender to you, Lord. We pray that that is our heart position to you surrendered with hands open, ready to receive what you have for us. And I pray the unity of our church would be yes and amen to you as you lead us, Lord. Give us that kind of faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.